Uh, today's scripture passage comes from Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Again, that's Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Would you all rise with me for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is part one of a series that we're going to do in a series. And so, who is Yahweh is what we're going to start with. Who is Yahweh? Who's God? Who said that? And if you remember from our series, it's Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? What that means, who is Yahweh? What that means is, I don't serve God. God serves me. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians had this belief that the gods served them. Yeah, sure, we'll do what they ask of us. We'll do the sacrifices. We'll go to the once-a-week meetings and so on as long as I get what I ask of them. I hope we're all continuing to listen intently with ears that are meant to hear. Don't you get it, Moses? We have gods in Egypt, and they serve me. Why on earth would I listen to the God of slaves? In many ways, people have said, commentators says, Pharaoh is the postmodern man. Ultimately, this is Pharaoh's question when he asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's asking, why should I let God meddle and interfere in my plans? Why should I let anyone tell me what to do and more importantly, direct my life? I get to direct my own life. I am God. There is no God, some might say. But what we're saying is there is no God other, other than me. And people that go to church and if all the Christianese down are not immune to this, we ask questions that are surprisingly similar to non-Christians many times. When we ask, how far do I have to go until I'm okay? I go to church once a week, but every week I'm good, right? 
What's the least I can get away with? Because can I just do this? I just want to do this. I want to do this. Why can't I just do this? What about grace, huh? What about grace? I didn't know that being a Christian meant that I'm supposed to live in a straitjacket. And even when we discern what is good, how many times have we let our feelings be the ultimate deciding factor? We can use words like blessed. I was blessed. I was moved. But what we should understand is that this is how the world has been working. I am the canon, meaning I am the straight rule which I measure everything up against. I get to decide what is wrong. And if I feel blessed, it's got to be right. And I feel, if I feel like there's something a little off, then it can't be right. Right? Right. And just like Pharaoh, we bring our challenges to the Lord. Why should we obey? And in verse 4, says, Pharaoh, God says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my, the, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Pharaoh has set up his gods against me. He has confidence in them over fearing my commandment. And God is saying, I will answer who is Yahweh that I should obey. God will answer Pharaoh's question. Who's God that I should obey him? In verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And God is going to answer with the ten plagues. And so this is part one of the series on plagues in the series of Exodus. So God isn't surprised by Pharaoh's answer because this is the human answer. This is what we refer to as total depravity. This is what we know David to have meant when he said in Psalm 51, in verse 5, it says, Oh God, I was born in sin, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean that it was an evil to be born or it was evil for, her mother, for his mother to bear children. And some would think that, oh, David's birth must have been surrounded by scandal, just like him and Bathsheba. Um, I would say no. The Bible makes no mention. But take that same thought. If you thought that, take that same thought and go further. Yes, his parents' scandalous sin was passed to him at birth, but go up the lineage and see all the scandals of his fathers and mothers. But I wouldn't say stop there. Continue to go up, and you'll see that it goes all the way up to Adam. The result of the sin of Adam and Eve was that the entire human race fell, and our nature as human beings since the fall has been influenced by the power of evil. So when we say total depravity, pravity, excuse me, total doesn't mean utter or completely, meaning there's no redeeming qualities. That's not what it means. We believe that the human race has been totally depraved, but it 
doesn't mean it doesn't have any redeeming qualities. Obviously, that's not the case. Most of us love our mothers, that kind of thing. But as the late R.C. Sproul wrote, total depravity is more like radical corruption, meaning that our very core, our hearts, have been corrupted. This is why the ancient man like Pharaoh is so similar in thinking to the postmodern man or even the post-truth man. Post-truth means if I feel like it's right, it doesn't matter what the facts are, which is basically the time that we're living. Look at how we're doing politically. Look at how we're doing just socially, economically. If I feel like it's okay, it's okay. If I feel like it's bad, it's terrible. Forget the facts, or I'll just use facts to corroborate what I really feel. And that's the, that's, that's the point, isn't it? We all suffer from this disease. It's like if I took some, any one of you, put it here, and I got this wand, I don't know, made of willow and has like a phoenix feather, whatever it is, right? If I got this and I said, Rajititus corruptio, right? And if I said, said that you are radically corrupted in Latin, and then I pointed at you, you know what you would turn into? Just who you are. Nothing would change. It would be who you are because that's who you are, no matter how powerful the spell so the next question that's answered is, why all 10 plagues? Couldn't God have just skipped and gone all the way to the 10th and gotten it over with? Isn't this overkill, God? But in chapter 9, verse 15 to 16, it says this, For by now I could have, God says, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you, have, you would have been cut off from all the earth, from the earth, but for this purpose... I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so here is the main point of today's message. God is for God. God is for God. And it's not only in Exodus, but this is all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake... And he says it again, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give another. And if you go to the New Testament, in Ephesians 1.6, it says, He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. In verse 12, it says, We first hoped in Christ to have been predestined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. And that's not all. There's more. If you want more, you can come to me after. I will give you verses. But there are those that do not want to accept this truth. And there may be reasons. And I'm just going to name a few here and go over that with you. Because number one, we don't like people or beings or whatever the case is that toot their own horns. Right? We don't like that. Like, don't toot your own horn. Have other people toot it for you. That kind of thing. Why? Because when we toot our own horns, there are real deficiencies in people that do that. People who always kind of just say, yeah, I'm the best. I'm better than you. You suck. That kind of thing. There is an inauthenticity that is at its core when people do that. So we don't like that. Why? Because people aren't the best. If someone were to claim that during their term, 
and this is just a random example, that they were the greatest president that ever lived, it would draw mockery, public scorn, and perhaps even shame. And if you were to still support him or her, it would not or could not be factual because there's always someone better at some things and worse at other things. That's being human. Unless you said that during your first year of your first term that you were the greatest. I mean, then you're just bold. Is bold the right word? LeBron James being the greatest is also debated until someone yells out, not at winning rings, and then everybody's like, oh, that kind of thing, right? If someone is good, even the best up until this point in time, people would hedge their bets on someone coming after that will beat that record. Records are always broken. Unless, unless, someone is actually that great. If someone was actually that great, then they would have to be great this very moment until the end of time. If there was someone like that, even if they were to claim, I am the greatest, it would simply be an objective truth claim. It wouldn't be inauthentic then because it would be the truth. Okay, fine. But isn't love not self-seeking? Isn't love how we are to view and respond to the world? You might ask, how then can we make the statement, God is for God? First, God is for God and God is love are not opposites. If God is infinitely beautiful, admirable, eternally perfect in every way, meaning He truly is the greatest, then worship should be a natural response. And secondly, as creatures of love, this act of worship and response completes our joy. I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. And this is what C.S. Lewis gets. When there is a massive dunk, like our elder, Sung, takes that chicken nugget and dunks that in that sauce. When there's that massive dunk, the dunk is complete when there's an eruption and celebration in the arena. Are you going to show us later? <laughs> um, when there's a massive athletic play, that play is complete when it's erupted when everybody's watching in that arena. Not only that, in love, for one another as lovers, the expression of that love is what makes the delight complete. God being for God is for our joy. Jesus coming to say, and he said this, I have come that joy may be in you and your joy may be full. 
And in light of this, when you hear that, that takes on a whole nother level. God is for God, is good for us. And so after they go back to Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron throw down uh, Aaron's staff, right? And it becomes a snake. But this is the thing. The Egyptian magicians do the same. But here's a twist. Aaron's staff, it says, swallows up the others. And this is significant because we went over how the Egyptian cobra is on Pharaoh's head and its protector. It's standing up. It's upright. It's literally saying, I will attack you if you even think that you can challenge me. And the interesting thing is, it is what you think it is. It is Aaron's stick being bigger than better and bigger than Pharaoh's stick. He's literally saying, my stick is better than your stick. He's literally speaking Pharaoh's language. Don't you see here? We can, we can smile, we can joke, but he's literally speaking the language that Pharaoh is speaking. He's like, who's God? I got the biggest stick. And he's like, oh yeah, I'll speak your language. So the question is, did the magician's staves really turn into serpents, or was it just some sleight of hand illusion? We don't know for sure. Commentators all have their speculations, and this is why I love that a lot of us have gone to and go to small group. This is where you can have your debates and saying, this commentator said this, this commentator said that. But here's the point. It doesn't matter. <laughs> because either way, Aaron's staff, was a real snake. Swallowing up something is something only a real life serpent does. But Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And this is something that we'll see come by again and again during the plagues. And so the first plague, meaning affecting all of Egypt, the first plague is given. And it's what we saw God tell Moses to do before. The Nile turns into blood. All of the water of Egypt is actually turned to blood. The Bible even says even the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And as you're like drinking something, it's like, oh my gosh, it's blood. Um, so this is actually happens. So some people say, oh, actually, uh, that's really tough. I don't want to. I don't want to say it was really blood. Maybe it was like a metaphor. It was red mud or it was silt. Uh, because silt actually does happen in rivers or Ethiopian red mud does actually slide down the river and it kind of have this, it does have this reddish hue, but that was not the case here. First of all, silt or red mud or whatever it is, is fertile and it's good. It's used as fertilizer. Uh, the, secondly, there was no way you could have gotten that much silt to kill the fish in the water. And thirdly, the Egyptians knew what silt was. They were Egyptians. They saw this happen. They wouldn't have considered it a plague. They were like, yeah, this is just mud coming down. That's just what happens. Let me use it to fertilize my crops because that's what they did. This was blood. And it appeared everywhere once Aaron's staff touched the Nile. And it says here, the Nile began to stink. And because blood is denser than water, and it's more viscous, and you know what that means, right? You can't really predict, like, if you cut yourself, like, 
unlike water, it has this stream. Its viscous is denser. Like sometimes you can't really predict even where the flow will go through. Uh, the Egyptians were able to dig along and draw some of its water out so they didn't die of thirst, it says in the Bible. And so God took what Pharaoh and the Egyptians took as their own God, happy. And we went over this. Their own God, the God of the Nile was called happy. And he took happy and made it useless. Because what did the Nile represent? The Nile represented, and it was their source of pride and confidence. No other nation had the Nile like they did. No other nation was great like theirs. And in one instant, boom, that pride is brought low. Blood is not supposed to be on the outside. Blood on the outside rots and it kills because blood is meant to be on the inside. And even the blood that we have stored is temporary and is eventually meant to go inside. Inside where? Inside the body. That's where it fulfills its purpose and this takes on new meaning in the New Testament when Jesus pours out his blood for us in a cup and that we would ingest it and drink it. This symbolic gesture is showing us that his lifeblood was given to us so that we can live. Remember, we don't believe in transubstantiation. It doesn't actually turn to blood when we do this, uh, but it symbolizes this symbolic gesture is showing us that his lifeblood was given to us so that we can live. And we don't say symbol to diminish its importance in our Christian life. There is power in communion that connects us as a body of believers to our risen Lord. This is why we don't say communion is just a mere symbol and we don't do it flippantly. We take it very seriously. And this is why unless you are a professing Christian and a member of the church, you're not allowed to take communion. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. even furthermore, this is what Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So the reason why we take it serious is because the Bible says take it seriously. That's why we don't have anybody come up to the table and say, you know what, I'll just, I, I want to take a sip of this. Is this real alcohol? Ooh, al we don't do that because this is serious business. We don't have kids come up and take bread anytime they want because they are not fully professed members of the church yet. This is why we have things like confirmation. So once you turn 13 in the Presbyterian church, we let you do confirmation if you've been baby baptized or you have to be baptized to take communion. It's because the Bible says take it seriously, we take it seriously. Not because we just want to, you know, separate, divide. Oh, we want to be exclusive. And there's reasons for that. So although this isn't the only plague to have used blood, let's remember what we were shown today. Being outside of Christ is like the Nile turning to blood. And what was meant to be life becomes death and despair. It's only when the blood of Christ is in you and the covenant is established is the blood life. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were once far off. Some of us may still be far off. We still claim to be our own gods, discerning only through our feelings, desires, through our own ontological, existential selves. But in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's not what you did, but what God did. And because of this, God, the author and perfecter of our faith, is working in you even now, changing your heart so that it becomes more like His, changing your desires so that it becomes holy, changing your mind so that you can be renewed. Sin that would crouch at your door, sin that would try to have you is now subdued and defeated in Christ. And just as God would lead his people out of Egypt, what we are to do is ask the Spirit to lead you to change your heart. Make it new by the power of Christ's blood that was shed for you. Submit to him and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the will to obey and follow Christ. This is good news for us. Because when we were our own gods, we were blown wherever the wind would blow. You know, the God happy, happy, they knew it was fickle because the Nile would always change its course and they would always have to adjust. They could be all prideful and they could be all confident. They could drive into the parking lot with their nice car. But then... Behind the scenes, they were scrambling every time it changed. They were stressed. And who saw that? The people that are intimate with them, their family members. Because you would come home raging, flipping tables, yelling. What's fickle is if we put our desires and our hope and our trust and all of our hedge, all of our bets on the world, or even worse, myself. And what God is saying, more than this fickle God that you think is God, I am more powerful. You know, he just doesn't randomly change it into blood. Remember, every single thing has a meaning, something that we are to search for, something that we are to seek. And we see that this, even the first plague, this first miracle, points to Christ. Christ's blood flows so that we can receive it. We can have his blood and that we can be made new and alive again. So when we say sin is crouching at our door, when Christ defeats that, guess who now comes and knocks on the door of our hearts and asks, if you would have me, I will come in and dine with you and you with me. It's our Lord Jesus Christ who says that. And he is the one that invites you to open the doors of your heart, to let him in so that we can submit to him ultimately as our Lord and Savior in every area of our lives. Let's pray.